Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Oh, what have you done now? You built a time machine? 
and uh, and and a natural cowlick in the front. So I I you know it's not a lot, not a lot. Surprisingly enough, I get that I get that question a lot. And for the listeners out there who want to know, I do not use gel. No hairspray is used. It is Paul Mitchell Reformer Cream. So anyone out there who wants to have the bouffant like bulletproof Brad can go out there and do it. And I'm, we're not sponsored by Paul Mitchell, but maybe one day. Hey, we could be. We keep this up. We could be. We could be. Well, hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Last week on the show, we talked about the the seat that we talked about the movie. We're going breaking down the movie. This is the season finale, episode two of three. I mean, it's it's special as the uh, current lead in the Republican uh, Party for the presidential election. This last episode was huge. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. Uh, we don't want to put a ban on any of the listeners listening, though. I'm just going to make that clear. Um, but we're going to pick up right where we left off. And Davy Boy Mitch, where did we exactly leave off last week? Okay, if my terrible memory serves me right, we are back in the alternate 1985. Um, the guys land at Marty's house, and Marty gets through the back door, or the back alleyway, and hops into his bedroom, or so he thinks. So he thinks. And then this is where we're about to pick up and we're going to break down the alternate 1985. So Marty and Doc land. Uh, well, actually, we see an airplane. And that's something I never understood. So was you know how the time machine only moves through time, not time and space, correct? So why, when they left Hilldale, did they end up on an airplane strip? Hmm. Anyone? Uh, may, maybe they just uh, they increased elevation, and there was a plane flying over Hilldale in the future. Okay, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. I never understood that. So we land, and then, like you said, we go to Marty's old house or his current address, and he jumps. He first he notices that the door is locked. And I remember the first time I see this, I'm, I wasn't really sure what was going on. Why was the door locked? And um, But I didn't really think much of it. And then he, he goes through the window, and he ends up in a girl's house. Now, here was a problem that I think some people might have with this film, looking at it nowadays. The family – and let me know what you think. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overanalyzing this, but the family who occupied – Marty's house now in the alternate 1985 was a uh, was a was an African American family, and um, I don't know if that was a if that was supposed to be a commentary on on what's supposed to happen when a whole neighborhood goes downhill. Is it supposed to be an African American family then moves in? Is that what I mean? Is that what was trying to be uh, portrayed right there? I think so. Um... Again, it was a different time um, back in the late 80s and stuff. Uh, one of the things I did notice um, only in the last few viewings of it was um, when Marty is walking down the street afterwards, there's all of the houses on the street have for sale signs. So it seems that everybody is trying to get out of the neighborhood. But the Marty's all house doesn't have a for sale sign. So it's very uh, appropriate when the guy... Well, we get into it in a minute, but when the guy kicks him out and says, you tell that company we're not selling, so I guess uh, his, his old neighborhood has become a bit run down. Okay, maybe they're trying to plow it all down and build another casino or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I, actually, I just thought that was kind of strange that they would choose to have the black family. But again, different time, different place. I guess that was a commentary on, on the time that, that they were living in. But um, so we find out that Marty's house is now occupied by a different family. Normie Norm, when you were first seeing this movie, did you have an idea of where this was going? I did not. And before we, we kind of plow forward, I just want to add that my favorite thing about this entire scene with Marty in the girl's bedroom is when Marty is standing there and the dad charges in with the baseball bat and then patiently waits for Marty to dive to the floor and then smashes all of the trophies off of the <laughs> it's, It was so poorly choreographed. They, they were off by a good six seconds. Like, obviously, he was there, and the character was wanting to take a, take a swipe at Marty with the bat, but that is not how it came out on screen. <laughs> I love the uh, the Michael Jackson posters on every side of the wall. And they're really trying to get across 1980s African-American family. <laughs> like, the dude had an afro. <laughs> and I think he said sucker at some point. I love it with the way the, the guy was like, um, or Marty's like, oh, I'm in the wrong place. And the guy's like, you're damn right you're in the wrong place. And he's like, I don't want any trouble. You're damn right you don't want any trouble. It's just like he kept repeating everything he said. I was, it was funny. <laughs> I mean, it and, was and then, great. He, then he paused dramatically to let Marty fall to the floor before smashing all the trophies off the, the cupboard. <laughs> what just a, what's just a random scene? So what exactly do we see as soon as Marty runs off? Uh, is that where he's going down the street and he sees like the the chalk outlines of all the bodies on the street and then he runs into Strickland? Yeah, he sees the you know stuff burned down. Well, that was in the latest scene, I think. The, the school, school burned down, but yeah, he pops down and uh, he's, he's looking where he is, and then he says, it's "Got to be a dream." And he goes over to the porch to find a newspaper to check it's the correct year, and then that's where Mister Strickland comes out. And Strickland. Part in the French, ladies and gentlemen, was a badass in this movie. <laughs> this guy was not oh, taking anything. Like this wasn't like I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a you know an a hole Strickland. This was I am shooting mfers who trespass on my yard. You know, um, for stealing a, for stealing a newspaper. <laughs> for stealing a newspaper, I'm about to kill somebody. You know. Oh yeah, he, I'm not missing my USA Today. He wrapped up that Kevlar over his bathrobe and came rolling out like a boss. <laughs> he really did, man. That dude was crazy. And uh, are you the son of a, you know, B-I-T-C-H has been stealing my papers? And he, doesn't he point the gun at his crotch? <laughs> <laughs> like, is he really going to shoot Marty's balls off for taking his newspaper? This is just <laughs> insane. And then you hear, hey, Strickland! And then a drive-by happens. <laughs> Like, where are we? This so, doesn't even make any sense. Who do you guys? You know what? Who do you guys it's, think it's, those were? Were they former students? Yes, I think. I think they were former. But here's the thing: it's weird. So was it, was that Needles and his posse back in the day? Like, who was that? I wonder. I'm not sure, but it, it's certainly not a safe neighborhood for potted plants. What a travesty! <laughs> Man, all those plants were popped, man. They were popped and broken. And so then um, Marty kind of takes the trip downtown Hill Valley. And I will say, 
in 55, in the regular 85, and in 2015, Hill Valley looks like a really nice place to live. It looks pretty much the same for the most part. This is a massive departure from what we know as Hill Valley. Um, you see burned down buildings. You see uh, motorcycle gangs running rampant. You see uh, you see the homeless man uh, again, the homeless dude. Um, Red. And then you see the uh, the Biff Motel, so or the Biff Hotel, the Biff Tannen uh, Hotel and Casino, or whatever it was. Um, wow, I mean, and you know what? I got to credit, you know, the filmmakers like we do so much on this movie. But I mean, it, it was just incredible the way that they planted. And I know we've talked about this before, but the way they planted the seeds for Back to the Future Three and Back to the Future Two. You know what I mean? Um, there was a, there was a, you know, first off, Doc, we even covered this, but Doc in the future was wearing a shirt that had like cowboys and, and Indians on it. it. And, you know, that was just supposed to be a, a slight allusion to Back to the Future 3. And uh, now, didn't he make a reference in this movie that he wanted to be in the Old West? Yeah, when uh, they're outside of Hilldale and they rescue Jennifer, he's talking about uh, how time travel has become too uh, much trouble and too dangerous and um, it's a shame because he'll never get to explore the one place he wanted to go, the Old West. So now he'll have to dedicate the time to exploring the other mystery in this world. Women. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that, Doc. Good luck, Doc. And we see that he doesn't figure that out in the next movie. But I loved how they plant the seeds for Back to the Future 3 in Part 2. And another way they did that was within this scene right here, they introduce us to the villain... Um, that's going to be in Back to the Future Part 3. We see a complete history of Biff Tannen. And uh, Davey Boy Mitch, you really have that photographic memory. What exactly all do we see here in this video? Just It just so happens to be so um, coincidental that when Marty is walking by this screen that Biff's life story is, is being played out. And it just explains um, how Biff made his fortune from... Uh, a trip to the race course, racetrack on his 21st birthday, and um, he parlayed all of his money into Bifco, Toxic Empire, and uh, made a fortune. And um, you see various pictures of him through the years, one with, uh, including a picture of Marilyn Monroe, which I thought was very funny. But um, he, he ended up marrying Lorraine, his childhood sweetheart, and what was it, um, two times a charm or three times a charm or something? And yeah, third times the, a charm, I think. The great oh, no. visual image of him sticking his tongue down Lorraine's throat and um, Marty just screaming, no. Yeah. But you also, you know, you know, he talks about his roots going back to, you know, like you said. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Mad Dog Tannen. And, you know, you see a picture of Mad Dog in the Old West. And, that must uh, have been that must have been one of the first um, makeup tests on Tom Wilson because he looks completely different in part three. Like in, in that picture on the little video, you can actually make out Tom Wilson when, as I said before, you know, I used to think that it was a completely different actor in Part Three playing Mad Dog because he was so such a, a transformation of the character, such a departure from anything Tom Wilson's done before in the in the, in the trilogy. But we'll get to that. Um, moving right along, though, so he yells no, and then who comes behind him? Norm, it is Biff's gang. Have they're all grown up? And uh, and I believe they say, uh, you know, do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? Right. Yes, and uh, unfortunately for Marty, he elects to do it the hard way, and he gets a nice smack on the head 
for his troubles. But what I love about this is so he gets a smack on the head from his troubles. He's out. The screen goes black, and you just hear a voice, you know, in this real deep kind of legato-y, you know, uh, delivery go, the easy way, you know. I, I don't know. It's a small thing, but it's always made me smile every time I hear that. And um, just as every good filmmaker does when they're making a sequel, they're giving us the, the, the great beats that we enjoyed from the first one. And here we are. David, I'm going to let you set the scene. But Marty wakes up. And then what happens? It's the uh, We get a, a familiar scene of Marty waking up in a strange place in the dark. And he says, Mom... Mom, is that you? And we hear a familiar voice saying, um, "There, there now. You've been asleep for so many hours and stuff." And he says, um, "He said I had this bad, terrible nightmare." Blah blah blah. I forget exactly what he says, but Lorraine says, "Well, you're safe and sound back here on the 27th floor." And that's when it clicks that oh, he's in a different 27th uh, floor. <laughs> he's not where he should be. And then he turns the lights on just like he did in the first movie looking at his mom, and this time, instead of saying that his mom is so hot, this is what Marty does. He stares at his mother's breasts. What is wrong with this guy? Well, she's she's so, so big. <laughs> there now, there, there now. They must have hit you pretty hard this time. <laughs> I'll tell you what guy hit pretty hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you, what is this some weird Oedipal complex that Marty has? He wants to call his mom hot in the first movie and then stares at her breasts in the second one. Wait, does he in the first movie? Yeah, he goes, Mom, you're so, ha, ha, you're so young. <laughs> I never really picked up on that before. But, yeah, he just in this one, he just goes, oh, you're so, and the only thing that's coming to his mind is big because he just sees these, um, fake chest in front of him which to be honest in my personal opinion i didn't really think they were that big but however um what <laughs> come on think those we've were all, big we've all seen bigger come on guys don't be playing around yeah and maybe they, we're, they if we're talking if we're talking sable in 1998 maybe <laughs> well i guess these were big for 1989 perhaps or 1985 these were what? huge what are you talking about maybe oh, were these big breasts or were they not big breasts they were uh, they were larger than average, but they also looked really, really fake. They they just looked like a prosthesis, which obviously they were. It just looked looked like a fake chest, like uh, a whole chest plate that was that was put on her on like a little bit of an extra chest size. But it didn't look, you know, Pamela Anderson or anything like that, or you know. But that's besides the point. <laughs> no, and, and to, be, to be to be fair. They could have gone bigger. I don't know why they didn't. I mean, come on now. We know I mean, it sells tickets. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it. You know, you might as well. Um, so anyway, we see uh, Marty start to freak out about his mom. And then, uh, you know, he kind of finds out, you know. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. So he, she, he hears Biff coming in and he says, oh, she goes, oh, no, your father's here. And he goes, my father. And then we go into this whole scene about uh, about you know Biff's mad that Marty's here. You're supposed to be in Switzerland, you little son of a bitch. And um, and they go from there. Um, what what exactly do you think they were trying to tell with this scene, Norm? Like, what was the story that the filmmakers were trying to convey right here? 
that that Biff married Lorraine and then just got rid of her kids from their lives because he wasn't interested in them at all, only in Lorraine. And, you know, I mean, Dave is just wandering the streets as a drunk, not exactly sure what happened to their sister, and then they just ship Marty off to, to military school. Linda Biff, Biff that, uh... no, Biff's not down with the, uh, the Brady Bunch scenario. He just wants Lorraine, and he doesn't want anything to do with uh, her kids. Linda just had a lot of credit card. Linda just had a lot of, a lot of credit card debt, and uh, he said she could settle that all by herself with the bank. So, well, so I mean, so is that what is that what finally broke Lorraine down and made her get with Biff? Was you know, was it was it George getting out of the picture, which we'll get to in a second, or was it um, she was just at this you know point in her life where she had an insurmountable amount of debt and she saw a way out with Biff? I think um, I could be wrong now, but I think the kids were this way because of Biff. You know what I mean? Like it's like um, he said to Dave, "Here, you go drink yourself away." And he said to um, Linda, "Here's some credit cards. Go, you know, spend whatever you want." And I don't know what the deal, what the deal was with Marty, but private another boarding school he was supposed to be in or something like that. I think um, they got he got he got that way because of Biff, as in he was trying to get them out of the picture, as Norm said. So I don't know if that was the case and. And what she picked them up with Lorraine, but I think maybe just uh, yeah, we'll get to the, the George part in, in a few minutes. But yeah, well, I mean, so I mean, essentially, I mean, I guess we can get to the George part right now. Is that you know she's you know he starts to say you know mom wh- where's dad where's my dad where's George McFly and she said oh they must have hit you pretty hard this time your dad's been the same place he's been for the past how many years x amount of years. In, in, in the cemetery. And oh. this is when we find out George McFly was murdered. Now, we, of course, know the reason why George McFly was murdered. Uh, Norm, you want to elaborate on that? Uh, as, as we know, and all the pinheads know, uh, Chris McGlover could not really, really play nice with the producers of Back to the Future trilogy. And he was asking for way more money than he had... Uh, the clout to ask for, so they basically wrote him out of the second and the third movie. Uh, his character appears briefly in part two, but uh, the, their solution to Chris McGlover asking for a whole bunch of money was, well, that's okay, we'll just kill you off. <laughs> and, and kill them off, they did. And kill them off, they did. Um what did you think, guys, about the decision to, in, in this alternate reality, um, kill off George McFly? I don't think he really missed him, to be honest. No? I mean, they did such a good job with, in the alternate in 1985. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a bit harsh in the sense that he's dead, but, you know, it kind of works, you know, like... Um, it shows how bad things have got for in the in the alternate nineteen eighty five that Lorraine is married to Biff and that the whole town is in a mess. So it kind of makes sense that George would be killed, you know, because Biff would want them out of the picture. And as we find out, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, and and I, I don't mind it because it adds a slight degree of of pathos to the whole movie, where you know this this isn't. This isn't messing around. Pe- people are dying now mm. because of what a what Doc and Marty are doing. Yeah. And 
ultimately, in in that reality, you know, you you can well Biff killed George, but that never would have happened had Doc and Marty not first traveled in time. So, like I said, it, it just adds a bit of pathos and some some gravity to the situation. It definitely adds some gravity, and it and it and it kind of you know put it gives some stakes to the movie. Um, you know, um, kind of like they did in the first one when Marty was disappearing and his family was disappearing in the in the photo because his parents never met. This time, a mistake that they don't know yet, a mistake that Marty made, cost his dad his life. And I don't know what y'all think, but as a son and knowing the uh, relationship that I have with my father, if I found out that I was the reason that my father is no longer in existence, I would feel pretty terrible about myself and be willing to almost do anything humanly possible to reverse that situation. Um, Unfortunately, we don't live in a world where uh, (laughs) there's a dime machine, but Marty does. So once he finds out George is murdered, he goes to the gravesite and he sees... Um, he, he sees the grave and he just, he's just, he's just like, it can't be true, you know? And then, um, then Doc shows up and says, I thought I'd find you here. And then they go back to the laboratory and Doc begins to explain what is going on. And, uh, I think that the first time I saw this movie, I was like, what is going on? And then when Doc starts to explain it, I'm not going to lie. You know, I first saw the movie and I was like a, a, a child, you know, you know, in, my you know single digit age, so I, I don't think I was able to follow it as well as I am today. But when you first kind of got the explanation, David, you know, were you following what was going on? Um, no, not, not to be honest. No, I mean, as we said, said earlier, when Marty first gets back and is in, he's in the wrong house and like the Hill Valley is a different place, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? And when they get back to the lab and. Doc starts explaining it. The simplest thing he does is the most effective with that chalkboard. We just draws a line, 1955 here, 1985, and then a, a line in the middle, swipe down, and it's an alternate 1985. And he explains to Marty that um, he figured out what happened with the uh, with the almanac and went from there. But Doc is very, or Christopher Lloyd, I should say, is very, very good at explaining exposition in. Um, in the small amounts and getting it clear to the audience. No, yeah, he's a master. He really is a master at doing that. Um, so we, so Chris kind of gives us the rundown of, of of what happened. He said some event in the future, or no, some event in the past made an alternate 1985. Now Marty does something that now we think is pretty uh, a pretty novice. He makes a novice suggestion. Why can't we just go back to the future? But uh, we'll get to that in a minute. So, Doc figures out what happened. Now, Dr. Brown is not only the smartest man alive because he invented Time Machine, he was able to figure out why all of this happened. And he sees that, uh, I think it was a newspaper clipping, he sees that uh, Biff had the sports almanac in his jacket pocket um, when he... With, uh, with, with his giant magnifying glass. With his ja- giant magnifying glass. So, here's a couple of things I want to break down. Did Doc, for some reason, I guess because Biff was so rich and famous, did, is that why he decided to investigate Biff some more and, and dig up these newspapers? Uh, hold on. I think you're forgetting one thing, guys. The first thing he probably did was looked in the passenger seat of the uh, DeLorean and he oh, found the top oh, of Biff's cane. What, what am I thinking? Yes. Of and the receipt for the almanac. 
Was that before? Well, I, I'm guessing because, I mean, you, you, you're thinking that he finds the receipt. He finds the top of Biff's cane. He goes, you know, what, doing what? a bit of research. And, mm-hmm. you know, then he sees the pictures of, in the library. And then but he sees he, the... Uh, no, but correct me if I'm wrong. He shows us He shows us the cane in the bag after he shows Marty the almanac in the pocket, right? Perhaps. But, you know, maybe it was the... The car before the horse or something, you know, which no, we can't. I mean, no, you're 100% right. I mean, I feel like an idiot for not even mentioning that. That's the reason he started to look into Biff because he found that in, in, the, in, the, in the DeLorean. But as an audience, mm-hmm. just, just to be clear, we're not exactly sure yet why he's investigating Biff, right? Right. Okay. Just to make sure I'm right. So anyway, he finds out that Biff has the almanac. He shows Marty Biff's cane. Um, the head of Biff Kane, which, by the way, I don't think we ever said the fact that Biff's Kane was a a fist was perfect for his character. Knuckles, he, yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely perfect, like perfect. When I become an elder statesman, I want a cane with a fist on it. Um, anyway, um, he shows him that he shows him the receipt. Marty then immediately feels awful about himself. Right, I mean, you can't feel any worse than Marty must feel right now, due to the uh, fact that you realize it's all his fault. You know, uh, you know, Doc is mur- uh, Doc is committed to an insane asylum. Marty's father is murdered. His family is is you know split up. You know, Biff is married to his mother, and he realizes that it's all his fault. That's really the weight of the world to put on a seventeen-year-old's shoulders, and um. I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly what – to me, don't you think Marty – do you think it would have been too much if Marty started to cry? <laughs> like I'm serious though. Like would it be – would that take away from the movie, the, the fun of the movie too much? Because this is really heavy stuff that would probably make any of the three of us shed a tear. Um, but you know, would it have been too heavy, Norm, if Marty started to cry in the movie? I, I, I no think – pun intended. He- you, you do stu- you do stuff like that, and you start to tiptoe out of the action comedy genre and into the, the the drama genre, which is not what this movie was. That's not what it's about. It's the ultimately these movies are supposed to be fun, and I think they did a very very good job of still expressing Marty's grief without him, you know, breaking into tears or even sobbing. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anywho, but I, I just think that you know, I mean, I I don't think they should have done it, you know. But I think that realistically speaking, I know this isn't a realistic film. Yeah, maybe they could have made him cry. I don't know. Um, saying, give a little emotional depth. But um, Marty finds out it's all his fault. So Doc says we have to find out the point in the past in which old Biff gave young Biff. The book, the almanac, and then Marty hatches a plan that he's going to find out. And then we go to a scene of Biff Tannen looking like an absolute pimp daddy with two very uh, well-endowed, beautiful women who are scantily clad. So scantily clad, I don't think they're wearing anything at all. um, In a hot tub watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly by uh, starring Clint Eastwood. And here's another thing. I mean, just... They're, they're really peppering in these references to the next movie. Is it here we are 
we're in 1985, the second film. He's watching a Western, right? So there's another reference to the West. And then he has a bulletproof vest in the West. And it's actually where Marty gets the idea in the third movie. And we'll get to that um, when we get to the third movie. But just such a great scene. And then uh, Marty barges in. If I'm a 17-year-old, though, and I barge in and I see my stepfather in a tub with, with some fine-looking women, I'm going to be like, you mind if I join you, Pops? Uh, but Marty had a different plan in his mind. He was thinking with the brain upstairs. And he says, uh, hey, Biff, we got to talk. Gray's Sports Almanac. Right? I mean, Marty right here, I think this is probably the most badass Marty McFly slash Michael J. Fox is in the entire film series. Just the way that he's standing on top of that hot tub and delivers that line. We need to talk, Biff. Gray's Sports Almanac. Am I right? And then, poor poor Biff. You heard him, girls. Party's over. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great shot as well that they have the camera through Marty's legs and you can just see his Nikes and you see Biff's face. You see the girl's face is Karen. You see Biff's when he says uh, almanac. He's like, "Okay, you know something." So let's down to get business. So it's just, it's a great moment. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it was it was fantastic, and um, and and so Marty really is just a badass, and and then he says, "All right, kid, tell me what you know about that book." You know, and, no, Wolf Biff. First, you got to tell me when you got it, where you got it, and how you got it, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes, "All right." November 12th, 1955. November 12th, 1955. That was the day that I went back to the... That was the day that I went... Uh, that, that was the day of the famous Hill Valley uh, you know, lightning storm or whatever, right? Good. You know your history. What a weird thing to say. Like, good you know your history. Like, is that not like... Here's the thing. Biff has such a contentious relationship with Marty and all of her, Lorraine's children. But he's going to stop for a moment to compliment it, Marty on his knowledge of... of of weathers of the history of the weather in Hill Valley. Well, what else are you going to say to that comment? You know, I mean, it's a kind of a strange thing to say. I mean, oh, that was the day of the famous Hill Valley lightning storm. I mean, so it's kind of like, what else do you say to that thing? It's like, oh, very good. You know your history. You know. Well, I guess. And and, and poor, poor Biff, yet another villain brought down by excessive monologuing. All Biff had to say was. None of your damn business when I got this almanac. <laughs> and guess what? He wins. Yeah. Great great point, Norm. Why in the blue hell would he tell him exactly what he wanted? I guess he thinks there's no way. Well, here's the thing, though. Let's break this down real quick. I think he thinks there's obviously no way Marty's going to be able to uh, to change anything if he knows when I got it and where I got it. You know? Um, who cares? But... <laughs> We're gonna, I'm going to foreshadow a little bit to later in the movie. We do know that when he runs into old Biff, the last thing did, – didn't didn't he say – didn't old Biff say something to young Biff about Doc and Marty inventing uh, a yeah, time machine? Yeah, a, a, a crazy old man and uh, a wild-eyed right. kid or something to that effect. So you know what that tells me? Don't talk about the damn almanac to anybody. But, I mean, Stay rich. What do you think that old Biff told Marty? I mean, told young Biff anything about the time machine? I don't think so, because it'd be too much to take. But going back to why 
uh, Biff told Marty all this stuff. The reason he's telling them is because he doesn't care because he's going to planning on shooting Marty anyway. So, you know, but at the very end, this is 1989. A, Biff has to see enough James Bond movies to know that that's not going to pan out well for him. Anytime the villain reveals the plot, like like Norm said, the good guy always finds a way to get out of 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 the uh, of the pinch that he's in. So, uh, you know, if we're going to use logic, movie logic, you know, I think Biff should have known what he's getting himself into. But he did. I did love this one line. It was such a Biff line to say. He goes, some old man shows up, claims to be a relative. I don't see any resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> like, you stupid SOB, it's you. What do you mean you don't see any resemblance? You know, they look just alike because it's you. And it was just such a great Biff line. And then, uh, you know, he kind of runs down the whole thing. He says, oh, yeah. And he also said, one day a crazy wild-eyed scientist or a young kid's going to come and ask for about that book. And if they do, and then he shows him the gun. And then um, just a great line, continuing the character flaw of Biff. Biff, what the hell is that? He points to behind Biff, which is just a blank wall that he has his safe on, and throws some kind of cigarette matchbook holder. Adam, what the hell was that thing anyway? That was, I believe, a Ninja Star ashtray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a Ninja Star ashtray. And once again, we're foreshadowing what's going to happen later in, in the third movie with the whole Frisbee gimmick. But anyway, you know, Biff holding a gun and a, and a, a circular object being thrown at him. But um, then we see Marty run off and uh, go to the... He kind of gets away from all Biff's goons, and he goes up to the top of the roof. And Biff is is uh, kind of staring him down like maybe he was staring uh, Buford Mad Dog Tannen down in the next movie. I'm telling you, there's foreshadowing everywhere. And um, it, you know he's saying, uh, Biff, can't shoot me up there. The cops are going to match that bullet with your gun. He goes, kid, I own the police. Besides... They couldn't match up the bullet that killed your old man. The reveal that Biff was the murderer of George McFly. Was this a very obvious thing to you, Davy Boy Mitch? Or did were you surprised when you found out Biff was the murderer? No, come on. It was, it was fairly obvious. I mean, there's always been a history between them. And, you know, just the Marty or Michael J. Fox, you say, had a, the perfect reaction to Biff when he said he's like, you son of a... And I think that's what we were all feeling, too, you know. Like, Biff is such a, Biff Horrific, I should say, is such a horrible character that, you know, you want to see him get his comeuppance. But, yeah, it was, it was kind of fairly obvious because who else could it be, you know? But I, I want to say Michael J. Fox or, or Marty McFly was so smooth when he just jumped off the roof. Just so smooth. Because it's like, I had no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> he, You didn't hear the time machine at all. You know, I really had no clue that the time machine was going to be there. And he literally jumps right off the roof. And Biff goes, <laughs> like, what the hell? Did he just make the job easy for me? Just like Buford Mad Dog Tannen does in Back to the Future Part 3. I'm going to continue to point out this foreshadowing. And then um, he comes to look over the edge. Marty raises up with the time machine. And he hits Biff in the face with, uh, with the De- uh, DeLorean door. And then, Norm, what does Michael J. Fox's character reveal to Dr. Brown? That uh, 
I got to think a second. I, I'm, I'm still I'm still focusing on Marty jumping off the building, and I just always thought that the the timing of that scene where he just kind of jumped off and then suddenly reappeared, it didn't give him any time to kind of scramble and stand back up. The the assumption is he had some kind of weird magnet boots on and just landed squarely on the hood and was fine. But it was beautiful. I, I don't know. It's, it was so smooth, yeah. yeah. It, it was. It, it, it was too smooth. Here's the thing. Real quick, I also got to give Alan Silvestri, you know, who we don't talk about enough on this show, supreme credit for his score of this scene because you hear this tense, this tension in the music, you know, and then suddenly it just stops, right, as soon as he jumps. And I've always loved the music right there because it's perfect. It's what we were all thinking. There was the tension in the scene, and then all of a sudden the tension's gone because Marty, uh, essentially we think that he's committed, what is he, committed suicide? So it, the music was perfect to capture the audience member's emotion right there in that scene. I mean, it was beautiful. And then, Norm, what he says to him is, you're never going to believe this. We have to go to November 12th, 1955. And Doc says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it! I mean, just beautiful. And he says... That that day and time must have some significance in the uh, you know in the space time continuum, or it could just be a, a amazing coincidence or whatever he says. And then they fly off to 1955, where they're going to go into the very first movie again, and for the sequel. And this is where we will conclude our look back at Back to the Future Part Two in the third episode of the show next week. We're going to look back and when Michael J. Fox and Doctor Emmett L. Brown portrayed by Christopher Lloyd, go back into the first movie to fix the past, present, and future, I guess you could say. So, any closing comments, my good lads? <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> to be concluded. To be concluded. Normie Norm? We spent more time in uh, the Biff verse than we thought we were going to, but I think that's okay. Well, yeah, we, we uh, in Biff Horrific, we spent about 40 minutes. So, I mean, we're going to give you all another edition of this show the very next week. And we're going to wrap up our season finale with part three of our season finale. Looking back at Back to the Future Part 2 in 1955 and when they made it back to 1985. But until then, I'm Brad Gilmore. He's Davey Boy Mitch, also known as David G. Mitchell. That's Norman Benford. We are your friends in time, and we will see you in the future. Brad Gilmore Show On Demand is meant for entertainment purposes only and does not mean to infringe on any copyrights of Back to the Future, its characters, its audio clips, or its music. Hope to see you again in the future. Oh, Brad, what have you done now? Oh, Brad, what have you done now? 
Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards.